Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Jack Rourke, a recognized paranormal expert who has appeared domestically and internationally on the BBC, Showtime, the History Channel, and Travel Channels. Jack was awarded Best Psychic for 2012 by the prestigious online database, The Psychic Directory. He was recognized by the celebrity news website, popeater.com, and he is regularly consulted on domestic and international criminal and missing persons cases. In recent years, his annual predictions were distributed globally by the Associated Press to more than 5,000 media outlets. In 2009, Jack Rourke was depicted by Warner Television as the real-life version of Patrick Jane from the hit TV show The Mentalist. In a unique documentary included with a DVD of the first season, Jack's expert commentary on psychic police work was interwoven with testimony from former FBI agents, scientists, and skeptics. Jack has also consulted on many feature films and appeared on Coast to Coast with George Norrie, Overnight America with John Grayson, and many other radio shows, including now New Consciousness Review. Today, we'll be discussing his fascinating new book, The Rational Psychic, A Skeptic's Guide to Extraordinary Perception. Welcome, Jack. I am so delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, and I love the introduction. It, it couldn't have been better if I wrote it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank my intuition says this is going to be a fascinating show. But please well, explain for us, Jack, the difference between intuition and psychic perception. Well, we'll just jump right into it. Well, you know, the way that I explain this in The Rational Psychic is um, intuition is is our is our gut instincts it's it's our own personal guidance system and that's a very important thing to remember because you'll find uh oftentimes people talk about offering intuitive guidance or intuitive this or they use the word psychic intu intuition interchangeably and that's understandable and in sort of in, in in common day vernacular it's really not a big deal but if you really want to understand the nature of extrasensory perception and what psychic phenomena actually is, we have to split hairs a little bit. And intuition is that inner voice in us, and it comes from a place within our mind that seems to be independent of our thinking brain. And what it really is, it's our unconscious mind speaking to us by our feelings. And those feelings are generated from all our past experiences those voices that were put inside of us from our uh, critical parents or teachers or even positive voices uh, from loved ones or mentors. And so we've evolved as human beings to have this intuition because it, it, it arguably it's what it's kept us alive, you know, through, through the millennia. Now, psychic perception is something that's unique from intuition in that Unique and similar. It's similar in that the information that arrives to us psychically also feels as if it, it, it comes from a place that we can't quite see where it comes from. It, it seems independent of us. But the important difference between intuition and psychic perception is that it is impersonal 
and it can be objectively verified. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are, that's in a nutshell um, the way I look at intuition versus psychic perception. One is personal, one is impersonal. And you'll find that a lot of intrapersonal conflict begins where people who see a psychic or as a psychic, if you notice, you know, uh, resistance coming from your client, is when you try to impose your intuition onto someone else. If the context is totally different. Your life, your needs are unique from mine. And oftentimes, um, novice psychics or well-meaning friends don't understand that what is right for me is not necessarily right for you. And therein also is why it's important as a practicing psychic or someone who's developing to understand their intuition versus psychic perception because we want to be of service. And whereas you can be an example, perhaps, uh, of, you know, what might be ideal um, in a certain situation. You can provide an example via your intuition. We have to respect the boundaries of another individual and really keep our personal uh, opinions to ourselves, our personal guidance to ourselves, and instead rely on our psychic gifts. In, in your book, um, you delve very deeply into the sort of psychology of the situation, which is very fascinating. Um, do, do you think that one needs to be read up or, or studied up um, in psychology and sociology to be really a, a, a world-class psychic um, or, or even just an, an effective psychic? To be an effective psychic, you have to have a big heart, and you have to be, have a willingness to selflessly serve, um, really, because how we affect change or we affect other people is through our hearts, not through our minds. So I'll say this. Being aware of psychological processes and, and sociological influences can, it definitely is helpful as a psychic because it helps to understand our client, our clients better, and it gives us a frame of reference through which to remove our wants, our needs, our emotions, our feelings from circumstances and our perceptions. It creates we. It helps create a more objective mind. Um, and in that objective base, we become much more effective viewers, you know, clear seeing, mm-hmm. um, clear hearing, all these things that we, we come to associate, the terms we associate with psychic perception. Really, the scientific end of the, of, uh, the social sciences, what, what, what I acknowledge that really, that's what it really does. It helps us to be more objective. It also can sponsor you know, feelings of compassion. You know, when you see someone suffering, we're more prepared to recognize suffering when we see it. Or, and also more importantly, like I, I keep diving into again and again in the rational psychic is when we understand how the mind works, when we understand the interplay between the environment and our biology, we no longer need the kind of mythological metaphors and, you know, spiritual sort of um, comparisons and metaphors is a good word too. Um, that so many of our colleagues rely on 
to explain the unusual um, or to, you know, help people cope. You know, we can give people, I've always liked to say to people, uh, when I was coming up with in this and discovering my own abilities, I, I wasn't satisfied with, you know, paranormal answers to paranormal questions. It just becomes this circular logic. So mm-hmm. when I can point to something, you know, really concrete and objective and say, this is why we feel this way or this is why things occur, you know, then, you know, I feel that prepares me to look deeper into myself um, and into my clients so we can really uh, begin to do the work that enables us to feel and live our best self. Your book is a great resource for anyone exploring the whole area of psychic phenomena because you you tend to separate the wheat from the chaff. What was your aim in writing this book? Who did you write it for? That's another great question. I wrote The Rational Psychic for, it started out writing it for other psychics. Um, and then as I, as I was getting into it, I realized I didn't write it. I didn't sit down with a, um, you know, a plan. Um, I'm the sort of person that if I, if I have to follow, you know, chapter one is going to be this and chapter two is going to be that, a whole outline, I get intellectually kind of like swapped. You know, I have to be able to set that, my intellect aside and write from a very intuitive feeling place. And so initially, I felt really moved to, to address the, some issues and obstacles and problems that I saw amongst my colleagues um, and issues that I've, I've found over the years with dealing with clients. I wanted to write a manual of sort that would really, really help psychics um, understand themselves and their relationship with the phenomena and their clients better. And then mm-hmm. as I was writing it, I realized... You know, over the last 10 years, you know, ghost hunting and paranormal investigation, as it were, have become so, so popular. Um, and I've been in the good, the good, uh, had, had the good fortune to work with and rub elbows with some of the most, um, you know, informed and sought after um, parapsychologists in this country. And through my relationship with them and working with them, you know, I began to see how a lot of folks, psychics and non-psychics, they, they mistake you know, different paranormal experiences or oftentimes even create paranormal experiences through distorting what they believe is psychic perception. And so I started to sort of introduce you know, those kinds of teachings as well. And before you know it, we had a guidebook for anyone who was really interested in paranormal and psychic phenomena. But I come from the point of view of a skeptic. And... This is a really important point to, to understand because, you know, sensitive people, psychics and, and healers and things, we don't like skeptics. So it's important people to under, important people to understand that the word skeptic isn't, doesn't, at its root, is not someone who's cynical or dismissive or, or doesn't believe in sort of paranormal psychic phenomena. A true skeptic is someone who asks questions, who searches, who has an open mind. Mm-hmm. And so really when I, when I, we decided to call the book The Rational Psychic, A Skeptic's Guide to Extraordinary Perception, what I was wanting to do is, is communicate to the reader that I see you have an open mind. I have an open mind, too. I, but I have questions, and I know you have questions because I was where you stood. 
I begin the I begin the book talking about my own quest for to understand what is going on here. Why do I sense information this way? Why do I feel so different from most people? You know, I had some powerful experiences that left me feeling like there was so much more to life, but at the same time, disconnected from life. And so I looked to books. I looked to people I thought were experts who were writing books, and I couldn't find the answers I was looking for, and I was getting these paranormal kind of myths and hyperbole and old wives' tales that were infuriating to me because they didn't really get to the, the nuts and bolts of why people with alternative means of perception feel the way we do and, and how and why we actually can perceive the information that we do. And this is the book that I wrote for, for my colleagues and for anyone interested in this material. Well, the question I'm sure that you are mo- most asked at the beginning of an interview is mm-hmm. what kicked off this psychic opening? Tell us about the experience that you had when your twin sister died. And was that your first real kind of jolt awake? Mm. Okay, great. Yeah, in the beginning of the, the Rational Psychic, I was I actually had to do a rewrite at the last minute. So that from, from page one, the reader is introduced to, you know, a little bit of frustration on my end because it took three years to write this book. And at the last, about ten months before, you know, publication, my publisher came back and said, look, we want to do, we want to do a rewrite. We need more of your story. And I thought, gosh, I don't, I never really wanted this to be about me. But it's really important that I, in, in, in retrospect, that, that folks understand where, where I came from. And you're referencing a story, as I, I'm actually a twin, and you're referencing a story. My twin sister died when I was 14. But the interesting thing about her death was, you know, I was a kid. You know, I had my own life, and I wasn't really too concerned about my sister. She was, she was my sister, you know, after all. You know, we, we, you know, we had our own friends and whatnot, and she lived her life, and I lived mine, and that was that, you know. And uh, so she, she caught a cold and she was sick, and, and I just didn't really think anything of it. I was a kid, you know. And, um, you know, she was sick for about a week or so. And one Sunday morning, I, have, I used to deliver newspapers when I was a kid, and I, I always used to oversleep. And I, I got up, I went out, I delivered my newspapers, and I was home early. And got a shower and got dressed, got ready for church, and we still had about 90 minutes or so before we left for church, and this never happens. I was always the one, you know, riding up on my bicycle when everyone else was in the car, you know, and, uh, but um, I had all the time before church, and so I, after I was ready and everything, I made my bed, I cleaned my room, I was playing darts, and and I just, there was nothing, nothing to watch on TV on Sunday morning, so I just was hanging out in my bedroom, and uh, I fell asleep on top of my bed, and I was really careful when I laid on my bed because I didn't want to mess up my church clothes or mess up my bed, so I, I laid in this, forgive the, the analogy, but I was like, looked like a cadaver. I was just laying on top of my bed, and it was perfectly straight, hands at my side. And I sort and I drifted out uh, of my body. Well, I drifted in uh, kind of like a twilight state. It's, it's, it's very hard to explain. Um, but as I entered into sleep, it seemed almost instantaneous. I I felt this presence and next it, it, next to my bed, sort of above the above the bed and in the center of the room, I heard this voice and it said, um, 
sort of it announced itself and it said, don't be afraid. And I remember sort of waking up inside my dream or inside this sleep state. I felt that I was dreaming. And a hand reached out to me and my whole body was tingling. And I was lifted from my body. Now, I remember actually, I remember sitting up, sitting up and, and seeing my feet. But as I sat up, realizing that, you know, when, you, when you're laying flat on your back and you sit up, you tend to bend your legs. You know, it's just not natural to sit up like completely, you know, from the waist. And I remember sitting up and, and waiting. I realized my legs weren't bending. And I look up and I see this being and he's sort of backlit. And it was this very, very, uh, I felt timeless. I felt everything, everything else was still. And he said, don't be afraid. Your sister's dead. Mm. And I thought, first, okay, I, I just didn't comprehend. And he said, your sister is dead. Look. And I looked to my right and I see my sister standing there. And now my sister, my sister was in a wheelchair from birth. Um, she had a, she had a spinal muscular atrophy and she had a heart condition. And so I saw my sister standing there with straight legs and a big smile. And then I saw her running and laughing. And I could feel her. There was this empathetic bond between us. And I could feel her joy. Like, I, it's something that you, only a person who has had an out-of-body experience can understand really what I'm saying. Because when you are not bound by the limitations of the physical that's the only time you can really, really understand what it feels like to be free of that shell. And there was this, this amazing feeling of joy, and it's, it's, it's not even something that you feel. It's something that becomes you. And, and I looked, and I saw her, and I was so overtaken that I began to cry. And it wasn't... It, again, it really wasn't an emotional experience so much as it was that energetically the body had to release the, the energy because it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And the minute I began to, to weep, I think my awareness became of the body and I was back in my body. And it wasn't, it wasn't uh, just a few moments later that a sibling burst into my bedroom and told me that she had in fact died. Um, but so was, a, this really, first, really, was this your first was this your first paranormal experience as a child? You know, looking back, I had listed some others, but I used there there were others, but I, I thought they weren't really relevant for the rational psychic, so I took them out. But they were just kind of minor. Like when I was a kid, of course, you know, I had I had imaginary friends, and you know, I used to talk to in, this invisible little boy that lived in my yard. <laughs> you know that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and um, you know I did strange things as a kid, and, and um, you know I would lay in bed at night, and I would I would find myself wandering around the house without leaving my bed. You know my awareness would travel. Um, I had out of body experiences all through growing up, but it was what was really profound about when my sister passed was the coming face to face with someone or something that communicated to me directly. And I had a visceral awareness that we, we do exist separate from our physical body. Um, and this was really tangible for me because unlike sort of childish experiences that can be, you know, 
looked at as psychic or paranormal or magical. This was something that had, I had a direct perception of knowledge. I had no reason to know through an extraordinary means that was 100% true. Um, and it, was, it had a profound impact on me in that I, I've never looked at life or death uh, the same way. Mm-hmm. Would you say that this was what led you into becoming a uh, professional investigator? Well, maybe maybe unconsciously. Uh, but no, I didn't even speak about the experience for several years. Um, and I didn't get involved in, in paranormal investigating until in my early 30s. Um, and I didn't start working as a psychic until my late 20s. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about, you know, a good 13 years between, you know, when my sister passed and, you know, when I began to look earnestly at, at my own ability. Um, I didn't actually really believe in psychics. The only experiences I really had with psychics until I was about 25 um, were, you know, sort of the sideshow kind of gypsy psychic sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no experience. And I talk about it in my book how there was other people who came along in my life uh, in my late teens and early 20s who recognized something unique with me and tried to explain, um, you know, or introduce the idea that maybe I was psychic. And it, it frightened me. Now, I talk about one particular experience in the book where a coworker of mine, she sort of sat me down one night um, after work, and she said, look, she spelled it out for me. And I'm being vague. The story is actually very entertaining, and I think it's important for people to read. Um, but what she did was when you know, I had received some information that there was no way that I could know, and I was doing this all the time, and it was causing me a lot of problems. You know, even into my 20s, you know, I, I talk, I, if, say if I was at a party with, a, with a, a girlfriend or something, I might talk about open information, you know, to people that, I'm getting from them, and, I'm, and I don't realize that they're not speaking this information to me, that it's not <laughs> part of their conversation. And so I'll introduce information into, verbally into a conversation that they're only thinking about or they're hiding about. And, and believe me, this caused a, caused a lot of problems. <laughs> um, so this, oh, yeah. And so when this friend sat me down and she, and she confronted me about this issue that I experienced at work, she really had to force it on me until I went, oh, oh. And then when she, when the light went on in my head that I somehow knew this information that I, it was impossible for me to know, it, it completely destroyed my understanding of reality. And instead of being wowed by it, and wow, isn't that amazing, I, I thought, what's wrong with me? You know? And, and so, you know, those are powerful moments. And I think a lot of people who identify as psychic or have had paranormal experiences, and certainly over the years of, of counseling and dealing with people who maybe think they're psychic or looking for permission to acknowledge their psychic ability, or they feel like they're confronting some kind of paranormal issue in their life, you know, um, they, want, they, want clear, they want clear answers. They want guidance. And... And without, without a proper understanding of how the natural world works and how our mind in, interacts with it and how, what it really means to be psychic and how to control it, more importantly, 
you know, we, we craft these mythologies and things, or we easily get, get sucked into a world of sort of, you know, metaphysical rationale. Um, that may or may not have anything to do with reality, but what it does, it tends to alienate us from our loved ones, our friends. People start to look at us as if we're odd or curious. You know, then in extreme cases, you know, people who identify as psychic, and even not just psychic, it's any people who get into, into spiritual traditions, they, they, when they become sort of fundamentally minded, meaning that they, they look at their own personal beliefs, and they put it out on the world as if their personal beliefs, they see it in the world, and that means it's actually true, they begin to sort of sometimes, you know, dress a certain way or, or adopt a certain way of being or a certain way of thinking, a certain way of putting themselves out there that really kind of sets themselves apart from, from not only what it means to be, quote, normal, but it, what it does, it spiritually separates them from their authentic being, you know. Um, and... I've just found that in writing this book, the feedback I've gotten from people that have purchased early copies and, and the copies that I've shared with my students is that this is, is actually a really, really, really valuable tool that I think, I really believe anyone who's, who's interested in psychic and paranormal phenomena, especially if they identify a psychic or are looking for a way to understand or permission to sort of come out, come out as it were, this will help you do that, and it will help, it'll help you, it'll prepare you, it'll show you what to expect, how to identify, you know, the phenomena, how to identify and, and understand what's going on inside of you, and then how to manage it so you can lead a healthy, normal life. Mm-hmm. You hint in your book that an abusive or a stressful childhood can often predispose a person to psychic sensitivity. How does that yeah. work? Well, it's really, it's really very um, interesting. I talk about in the book how I was having a conversation with a really, really well-known psychic. Uh, people would know this gentleman. Um, and about a week or two later, I had a similar conversation with a, with a really astute parapsychologist. And both of them were sort of saying, well, my, the, the psychic said to me, have you ever noticed how every psychic you meet, they're all effed up? <laughs> and he said, you know, I hadn't quite thought about it that way. And he said, yeah, they all have come from effed up backgrounds. And it was sort of entertaining to listen to this really famous person talk that way. And I said, well, let me think about that. And then, you know, I was talking to the parapsychologist. He said, no, he said, this is, this is very common because he didn't believe in psychics. But he said, people who think they're psychic, yada, 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 this is what, where they come from, and this is why they develop these adaptations. And I said, okay. So I sort of began looking into myself. And what I found is that it is, in fact, by and large true. I look at, there's, I look at psychic ability um, in a couple of ways. I think that all of us, psych, you cannot make someone psychic, you know, even with, even with I'm going to be clear here because I know that's a very unpopular thing to say, you cannot make someone psychic. What psychic training does is it enhances what's already there. So if you don't have a natural predisposition or for psychic sensitivity, your success is going to be minimal. You know, I believe anyone can probably be, you know, trained or encouraged and they're going to have some experiences, but certain people are more astute psychically than others. It's like if someone has a predisposition for basketball or playing piano or something like that, 
they could never be trained, and they're going to be okay. But if they get training, they're going to be masters. And so this was this is true. Even uh, Dr. Ed May, who helped uh, train and develop the psychic spy program, says the same thing. Dr. Barry Taft from the OCLA Parapsychology Lab in the 70s, same thing. You know, this is a very common thing. But anyway, the point being is that there's people who can be who can go under some training and they become they can become successful psychics. And then there's people that really have sort of a natural predisposition. They naturally sort of garner information from people. And these people in particular can be really, really, really gifted, gifted psychics. But even without training, their mind works in a way that is very psychic. And so let me, let me, let me cut, to the, cut to the point of the question, is that issues of trauma, stress, abuse, neglect, emotional neglect, these types of things in childhood, they condition the child in such a way that they become hyper alert for stress, for threats, their threat, their situational awareness, their threat detection mechanism within the brain becomes highly aroused, and it remains highly aroused because the environment in which they they live is threatening. And so, what this hyper arousal state does is it makes you super sensitive to all the nonverbal cues, the facial expressions, the tones of voice, all these alternative means of in, of, of letting us know that something is amiss. Okay, now, I go on to say what I found in doing some research and doing some, a series of interviews with dozens and dozens of psychics, and in my personal experience, what I've noticed is that these same sensitive people, when they are charged in childhood to be caretakers, meaning, let's say, there's a, there's a parent who is emotionally overwhelmed or has substance abuse issues or is, you know, mentally or physically disabled, emotionally maybe disabled, and they're not, not there 100% for the child, allowing the child to be a child, then oftentimes what you'll see is the child becomes what's called parentized. They become sort of like a parent. And you'll find the child is taking on responsibilities, caretaking responsibilities for the child, for granny, for the brother, the sister, the sick cousin that lives with them. You know, they become caretakers. And so this, in this hyper-aroused state, functioning as a caretaker, children's brains are conditioned that their survival is dependent upon their ability to provide for others. And, you know, a child... The only way they can provide for them is to, by pre- to predict their needs and help control their circumstances in a beneficial way. This is how they maintain the well-being of the person they care, care for, and this is how they provide for themselves, by controlling their environment. And the only way they can do this is through a mental means of precognition or some form of non-physical awareness. And... This is really, really, really important to understand, and, I, and I, it's, I've seen it again and again and again and again with people who have this, this caretaking, hyper-aroused brain. 
these are the folks that 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 inward awareness, that ability to navigate the emotional avenues so swiftly and so accurately. These these are the people that 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 internal sensing ability, that acute, that really astute, acute internal sensing, is what allows us to perceive information, energetic information, that normally slips into the unconscious in the everyday person. Mm-hmm. And we can interpret that energy into objectively verifiable information. And, and that, in fact, is your definition of uh, real psychic viewing, objectively verifiable information. Yes, yes, when you... When you you know, mm-hmm. as a psychic, you can pontificate all day long, but unless the information is objectively verifiable, it's still just a pontification. Mm-hmm. You know, now, you, uh, I've, I've had, I've had uh, interviews with uh, psychics who, um, some who fell into the category that you're, you're describing, but others who had a traumatic incident. They had their own near-death experience or a dark night of the soul where they had nowhere else to go or a life-threatening illness. And, um, that kind of catapulted them into the hyper-aware state. Um. Yes. Yes, okay. that is, that is, that is true. That is true, um, that there are, I read a book many years ago, and I forget the title at the moment, but there is evidence to suggest out there that near-death, exchange, near-death events actually do change the brain. Mm-hmm. And let me, let me just make it clear, is that we don't, we don't the brain isn't, what, isn't the perception mechanism of extensive perception, but it's, it's the tool through which, in, through which we we operate and perceive information. I know that sounds contradictory. So when the brain, it's like sort of like when the brain changes, when the radio station changes, we can get alternative information. But here's the thing also, Miriam, and honestly, is that I found, you know, with among colleagues, you know, who even those who have had, you know, near-death experiences and things of that horrible car crashes, and they come out on the other side and they realize, I have this ability you know, those types of things are a lot easier to talk about publicly. So I just want to, I'm, I, I understand what you're saying, and I do agree with you, and those, those circumstances absolutely do influence. But, but, I, but in knowing some of these well-known people myself, and I'm not going to name names, you'll find that speaking off the record, there, there may be, you know, substance abuse with their parents, when childhood and some and other issues that are more uncomfortable to talk about, and that's one of the things you know about one of the spiritual aspects of, of of psychic work is is we have to own who we are, and it's painful sometimes to admit, but you know we're all human first, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then we're psychic, you know, so. And I'm sure it's a continuum too. Yeah, okay. Oh no, absolutely. There's absolutely. We're talking. I just mean specifically when, as a human being, when you're relating, selling a book, or you're making a public appearance, it's not comfortable always talking about some of the pains of our past. It's easier to point to one spectacular event 
and say, after this event, this is who I was. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, and I'm thinking of almost a half a dozen people here that were well-known, there were issues in childhood before that, mm-hmm. you know. And so I'm wondering sometimes, you know, whether it's just it's easier to talk about this one particular thing or if, you know, or if, um, you know, or right. if that's really it, you know, yeah. so. But you're, you are right. There are, there are instances where, you know, near-death experiences, uh, disease, these type of things, they open us because it forces us to see, well, you know, I did this ritual, I prayed, I followed this way of thinking, and I healed myself, or I had this near-death experience, and this occurred, I had this tragic event, you know, and this happened. And those are, those are very, very real. You know, in our, we, we have, you know, something in our brain called, with two things called the causal and binary operator. And the binary operator sort of puts things, you know, good, evil, up, down, you know, bad, good. You know, the binary operator helps us make comparisons. It helps us understand the world. The causal operator, you know, is one plus two plus three equals, you know, six. You know, so we like to think in linear terms. So it's nice to sort of, you know, say, hey, you know, this happened, then that happened. But really, I think it, it, you're right, it is a continuum, and there's a vast, a vast amount of experience to contribute to who we are. You've investigated more than 500 complaints of alleged hauntings and paranormal intrusions, poltergeists, mm-hmm. and so on. Tell us about yeah. some of the field investigations you do. Well, I write about, in The Rational Psychic, I write about a couple of really good cases. And, and, I'll, and I do frame them in a way so that we can look at them and understand ourselves a little better. Um, it's a very common phenomenon that you know, people feel plagued by spirits or put upon. Um, and what I've, what I found is that, well, you're not probably interested in what I found. You want a good story. <laughs> but, no, actually, I'm interested in what you found. Okay. I know this is a season for good ghost stories, you know. But, um, <laughs> in the book, I, in the book, I do, I do talk about a gentleman who called me to his house in about, it was in 2005. And he believed he was possessed by a demon. And I thought this was strange. And now the call didn't actually come directly from him. It came through a local priest. And he had contacted the priest. And, you know, the priest is like, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. We found out the reason the priest had referred to us was because um, in 1999, the right of exorcism was changed. And people have to be, um, they have to be declared physically and psychologically well before they can jump to do an exorcism. So long story short, we go to his house and you know the place is relatively neat. He's, an, he's a guy in his late 40s. He has two you know, adult female roommates. Uh, they live in a townhouse. Um, very sort of normal, everyday folks. But this guy was really, really, really disturbed by what he, by what he experienced. And through relating his experiences, he actually broke down and was crying. And I thought, well, this is strange to see a grown man crying like this, you know, sobbing at, at some point. And uh, after a lengthy interview, he said, you know, look what they did to me. And he, and he pulls up his sleeve and he sees scratches all over his arms. And, I, and the month before, 
I had been to a home uh, north of Los Angeles in the desert where I watched a young girl manifest wounds all over her body. And I thought, well, okay, that's possible that this, these things spontaneously erupted. But I could see these are places where he could reach his, he could scratch himself, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he, he pulls his shirt up over his neck and he turns around and he punches his back and he said, and look, and there was a bite mark in the middle of his back, a human bite mark. And the, myself and the fellow investigators who looked at each other and went, oh, that's interesting, you know. No and way someone could bite his own back. What's that? No way someone could bite his own back. No, no, he certainly couldn't. And so, you know, this was interesting. And I've read of cases where, you know, where bite marks and things appear on the body. And I thought, well, this is pretty fascinating. I haven't seen this before. And he went on to talk about how, you know, the what he described as demons, they would rape him. And he talked about an event where he was thrown to the floor in his, in his uh, kitchen and he was raped and he would hear all this profanity and they would, these voices would tell him what they're going to do to him and, and what a horrible person he is and how he secretly likes this. And really, I mean, it was really, really um, defouling him at the core of his being, you know. Um, and he had a dog at the time and the dog, you know, went to sniff his face when he was riding on the floor and the dog ended up being thrown across the floor into the wall. And oddly enough, I think it was the situation with the dog that actually inspired him to, to call us or reach out for help. It felt to me that he actually loved the dog more than he loved himself, to be honest. And so we spent part of the, almost all night um, with this guy. We, we had some devices and we we're sort of measuring the environment in his bedroom and everything seemed the baseline measurements were all really within range of anything normal. There was no, no strange electromagnetic fields or geomagnetic activity. You know, there was, there was, there was really nothing, nothing crazy to report. And then as he was lying on his bed, he said, well, let me just stay with me while I'm sleeping. And, and he was convinced that this demon would manifest while we were there. So we set up some cameras and we, and our instruments began to fail. And so there was a young man there who had uh, what's called a DC magnetometer, which is really useless. I think, I think he had seen it on TV, and he thought it would be something. He was going to go ghost hunting with these big people, and he thought it would be fun. So, you know, we let him play with this device, and, and when our instruments failed, he goes, here, well, we'll use this. And he set it down on the bed next to the guy, and it had this long probe, and he stuck it up under his, under his waistband of his boxer shorts. And... Um, and I just thought, my, my, my colleague, I thought, you know, it's harmless. We don't want, you know, we don't want to, the guy was probably 19 or 20. I didn't want to embarrass him or, you know, whatever. So, um, the strange thing was the DC magnetometer, people who are listening may not know, it's meant to measure man-made currents. You know, you measure your refrigerator or, you know, what have you. It's not going to, to, uh, register any bioelectric output from the human body. And that's really what we wanted to see, if there were any physiological changes with him mm-hmm. um, while he was dreaming or when, if this monster appeared, that, you know, what, what would happen with these with the devices, what readings they would, they, would, they would give us. So the, the strange thing was, was that about a half an hour later, he reported that the demons were there and that they were going to rape him, and they were going to make us all watch, and all these terrible things were going to happen. And we're standing there in the dark, and we're recording this, and 
And the DC magnetometer, every time he would say the demon was near, this thing would erupt. So what was your interpretation? I didn't know what to think about that. You know, my, my, you know, in retrospect, you know, I'm wondering if he was a poltergeist agent, meaning that psychokinetically he was affecting the device, not through any kind of, um, you know, bioelectric emanation, mm-hmm. natural, uh, due to stress or elevated heart rate, those type of things, but perhaps if he was psychokinetically affecting the device. And I know, think that was, was, that was in fact your conclusion, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that was my conclusion. But mm-hmm. the interesting thing was, fast forwarding before we left, he asked me to pray with him. And, you know, certainly I didn't want to leave him worse for wear because I didn't go there planning to do all these sort of experiments on him. And, of course, I'm jumping around a lot, and there's a lot more to this story, and uh, I think readers particularly will enjoy it because um, I, I spent a great deal of time on this case. But yeah. well, uh, a, a cut to the chase at the end of the evening, I prayed with him. And I know people have different ideas of what it means to pray or, or what it means to, to affect the healing on person. But my, 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 my means of doing things is just to be still. And I believe in finding that, that stillness, that, that divine connection within myself, that pure place, and just allowing that vibration to, to affect the vibration of the person I'm with. And as I, as I went within and I, I entered into what he thought was a traditional prayer, I moved into this energetic space and I visualized enveloping, enveloping him with this pure, unconditional acceptance of who he was at his core, separate from any of these diabolical conceptualizations or negative feelings, negative self-concepts. And as I began to move into this pure place and really see and embrace him for who he was, and I was holding his hand at the time, and I felt a peace, and, you know, kind of forgive the, you know, mm-hmm. the reference or the pun, but a peace that surpasses all need for understanding. And it really filled me, and, I, and it was a very beautiful experience uh, for me personally. And as I began to pass and visualize this, this energy, She's sort of going through him and into him and around him and us seeing us as one being, not two people, you know, feeling him as my brother and as part of my soul. He began to sort of become aggressive and said, told me that the demons were, were now after me. And there was no communication at this time. This is all happening within my mind. And then he began to tell me verbally, they don't like whatever you're doing. They don't like it. They began to swear at me. Mm-hmm. And he began to say, you know, vulgar sort of sexual things to me, what they're going to do to you. And I just kept, I just, you know, inside, was like, to me, he, he could be talking about anything. It's just irrelevant. I don't believe in that well, kind of stuff, you know. We do and have to wrap up. So, so get, can you uh, just get to the conclusion of this story? I will be, yeah, it's yeah. Very, very simple. As I refuse to acknowledge the nonsense that he was saying, he spontaneously ran to the sink and began to vomit. Mm-hmm. And, and it, was a, it was a really, really interesting experience because only then did he begin to exhibit some of the symptoms of possession. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, you know, you can look at, you know, the stages of exorcism and, and maybe that was just the first beginning. But it was a really, really powerful experience and I think the one that readers will enjoy.
there are so many powerful experiences in the book um, that I, I really can uh, only scratch the surface here. Um, can you can you kind of give us a crystallization of what the psychic connection feels like for you? Yeah, when I'm when I'm working psychically, when I'm in the zone and truly connected, my awareness is is outside of. I'm no longer with my body. I feel I feel a stillness. Um, it's like I feel slightly removed from my physical being, and there's there's a stillness, there's a clarity, and there's a, the information appears spontaneously. It's very important to understand that that psychic perception isn't something you do; it's something that you allow. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really putting yourself in that state of allowing, and then it just happens. It's, it's a state of it's a state of, of receptivity, um, and it's just it is a still, clear, quiet mind. Yeah. And you you just kind of allow the the target information to come into your perception. Is is there some kind of like uh, code or or magnetic attraction? Uh, you even are able to um, make this connection through a photograph and remotely. How does that work? Mm-hmm. Well, it's very interesting. You know, everyone has their different sort of modes on the surface, but I, I, you're kind of sniffing around. I think there's a I talk about a murder case I worked on in the book where, you know, you information exists environmentally. It it, 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 it exists everywhere all at once in the fabric of, of, of our existence. It's not like if you're viewing someplace in Japan and you live, I live in Los Angeles, that, that's any more difficult than looking out my window and seeing what's, seeing what's there. It's just allowing yourself to, to open up and, and perceive it, you know. Um, and so how it works, no one can say for certain, but really what it is, it's about, it's about energetically sending out a signal and waiting for the response. You know, you can ask questions, but then you have to wait for the response. The really, the most important thing is to disengage the intellectual thinking mind. It really is just being receptive. It's being completely passive and recognizing that I alone can do nothing, mm-hmm. that I am just bearing witness to something greater than me manifesting, you know, as, as an expression, an individual expression in my individual consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how it occurs, you know, we can only speculate, but it's just a way of, of opening, being still, and trusting, you know, trusting. Trusting. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, I mentioned in the intro that you were giving uh, predictions out through the media. Do you have, and and you also say in your book that sometimes you were trying to distinguish between a possible future resonance as opposed to a past resonance. So what I would like to close with is, do you have any insight into what's going to happen at the end of December 2012? 
<laughs> How interesting. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I've never, I've never been a believer in the whole 2012 thing. I feel like, you know, I feel like we could have some, some, some sort of anomalous, you know, problems with um, satellites, with communication, with telephones. But I, I really don't feel like it's going to be anything dev- devastation. I don't think it's going to be anything really, really, um, you know, like civilization is not going to shut down. I do feel like we could have some kind of volcanic eruption or another a significant earthquake in the South Pacific. Um, one that could, you know, we could find between Christmas and I'm going to say, you know, around the new year, perfect of the new mm-hmm. year, that we could potentially see some kind of, um, you know, tsunami warning, that kind of thing, um, in the South Pacific, uh, like Sumatra. And that, what about, what about a shift in, in, in awareness, a kind of a global transition to a higher state of awareness? Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like this is going to be any kind of, you know, um, monumental time where human consciousness leaps forward in one big degree or another. How Uh, very disappointing, Jack. Yes, I'm sorry to say that. (laughs) I I know it'd be wonderful to sort of end on a really feel-good note. Absolutely. I feel like like it's just, it's going to be just... Uh, it's going to be a powerful transition time, obviously, in our government, in the world, and with and with 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 the human perception, with our human mind, and our collective sort of understanding of who we are. We are we are already going through an incredible shift, a dramatic change, as cultures resist one another um, and have you know and fear kind of the ultimate. You know, we're, we're going toward, humanity is moving toward a oneness. It's the world is getting smaller. Technology is facilitating that. But by and large, we are moving toward a more inclusive global society. So the change is already there. Excellent. Um, well, yeah. from, your, from your lips to the ear of the universe, we've been speaking with Jack Rourke, author of The Rational Psychic. You can find out more about Jack Rourke at his website, jackrourke.net. So, Jack, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a delight. Thank you, Miriam. And do join us next week and check out our website, ncreview.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review.